Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. All right, thanks, Pastor Jeff. That's a helpful intro uh, to what we're going to look at, Galatians 2, 17 to 19. Galatians 2, 17 to 19. You've probably had the experience, maybe when you were a kid or now as an adult, where you see, let's say, a nephew or a niece, and they're three, and then you don't see them for a time, and you come back, and they seem to have grown up before your eyes, and now they're like a young man or a young woman, and they say something like that. Wow, you're all grown up. There's a remarkable transformation or maybe just moment to moment. This probably hasn't happened to you, but to somebody else where they've been really cranky, and then something happens, and then suddenly they're pleasant. I'm not saying that would ever happen to any of you, but you've seen somebody else like that, and it's a really quick transformation, or maybe the other direction. Well, this sermon's going to feel like that compared to last week's sermon. Last week, we heard of our culture and our guilt in regards to the most innocent and vulnerable and voiceless. And like, thank you for your responses. I got a lot of confirmation and attaboys. And I will tell you, uh, thank you for that. Yet your criticism is actually more helpful to my soul. And yet I'm very grateful for your encouragement. And yet some of you where I heard through the grapevine left with, okay, now what? What do we do with all the guilt? Well, this sermon will answer that. But let me pause this sermon and answer another question relating to last sermon is, well, what about contraception? That was, I think, not answered, or at least not answered how you would like it to be answered. Um, can a Christian lawfully, that is biblically, being pleasing to God, honoring God, use contraception. Now, one of the difficulties in answering that is either to get a, give a blanket no or a blanket yes may not be helpful to your specific situation. You as parents may have a blanket no to video games, and yet in certain circumstances, maybe you allow a kid to play. You know, we do that as parents. We apply our household rules specifically to specific instances and so on. And then all the other kids say, but what are you talking about? You got him into that. All right. So when we get to the issue of contraception, just we have to think. We have to think about scripture. When you read the Bible faithfully, honestly, which direction does the Bible point you in regarding contraception? Would you see in the Bible contraception of no problem at all, free for everybody? Or would you see in the Bible a, that would be a rarity? And giving yourself, being open to God's fruitfulness would be the rule. What would you see there? I think the rule in Scripture is that we get married and give ourselves in faith to being open to fruitfulness without contraception. And yet in our day, and my point last week was we think exactly the opposite. We don't think at all. It's just like a right. 
why would anybody ever question that? Everybody's always said yes to contraception, right? If you look at all in church history and how Christians have thought about it, up until 1930, it was all just, no, Christians don't use that. And, and common Christian people in their consciences thought highly of that. It didn't feel to people like a right being taken away, but a privilege, a freedom being enjoyed. But because we live in this world, we swim in this water, we feel like when we hear anything negative about contraception, a freedom is being taken because we have like historical amnesia. We think that our day must be normal and 10 seconds ago is forgotten, okay? So when I read to you that in 1930, the first Christian denomination church approved even in very, very limited circumstances, the use of contraception. And then I read you the quote from which paper? The Washington Post condemning them. Aren't we indicted? So what's the answer to contraception? Well, I'm not going to say yes. I would mainly say no. But it's about motive, isn't it? Which means you're going to need counsel. You're going to need to talk about with somebody who loves you, who's an older, godlier husband, or a father or mother of the faith, and talk about why would you want to? What's going on? There may be some circumstances in life that others who love you and are godly and tell you the truth would say, yeah, I can see it being used in these instances. But generally in Scripture, we want to be wide open by faith to receive the blessing of children. So that's the answer. Does that help you? I think a lot of times people just want us to think for them. And as long as our thinking agrees with their thinking all is well, but if our thinking doesn't agree with their thinking, even though they just want us to make it simple for them, then it's not simple anymore. And so that's the difficulty with it. All right, so hopefully that addresses that. But let's go back to last week's sermon, this week's sermon, the comparison we come in our text to something as intense and radical as last week's sermons, but kind of on the God's grace end of things. So last week, I'll use the word scandalized again. You may have been scandalized by the intensity of what you heard and the truthfulness of it. It was helpful. I had a medical professionals come up and say, yeah, all that's true, which I had done by homework. I was really certain that it was true, but that's helpful. People in our church commend that. But it was intense. It was scandalous. But now, how do we deal with condemnation and guilt? How is our relationship with God established? All right, so we are in Galatians 2, 17 to 19, kind of connecting last week's sermon and this week's sermon. Let me take you back to the Old Testament and start there in order to get our minds going in a certain direction. So go to Second Chronicles 33. <clears throat> 2 Chronicles 33. So uh, the books of Chronicles, like the books of Kings, chronicle the lives and behaviors and sins and blessings of the various kings in Israel. And here in 2 Chronicles 33, we meet a king named Manasseh. So typically you can ask, good king, bad king. 
right? The, the text will say very simply, he was a good king in the eyes of the Lord. He walked faithfully or he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Manasseh is kind of one of those that you go, I don't know what to do with this guy. Because you see in 33, 2, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And then it gives a list in the following verses of explanation of what it means, what evil did he do. And look at verse 6, connecting it to last week's sermon. He burned his sons as an offering. What a, what a wicked man. That's the height of wickedness. So that's connecting to last week. We are a culture that gives our children over to the gods, right? Now, let your eyes drift down and look at verses 12 and 13. And when he, that's Manasseh, was in distress, so he's in trouble, the Assyrians come, and in verse 11, Manasseh has actually probably had a hook put through his nose and led to Babylon, so he's in distress. <laughs> he, he didn't stub his toe. When he was in distress, what did he do? He entreated the faith of the Lord. He humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He repents. Wonderful. Wonderful. And what does God say? Verse 13, what does God say? Too bad. You sacrifice your children. Are you kidding me, Manasseh? It's too late. I've got no worth for scum like you. There is no forgiveness. There is no salvation. You're getting what you deserve, right? That's what God says. Nope. He prayed to him, that is, Manasseh prayed to God, and God was moved by Manasseh's entreaty, heard his plea, and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. <laughs> Is that scandalous? Doesn't that scandalize you? I don't think you're a thinking Christian if that doesn't rock your boat. That God would forgive Manasseh just like that. Nothing to do. Except say, God, forgive me, apparently. That's it. And it looks like we'll see Manasseh in heaven. That all right with you? He sacrifices children to false gods and fire, and he'll be in heaven. Why? Because of what we're going to see in our text this morning. So what do you do with guilt? What do you do with the condemnation of the law? Well, we're going to see an answer to that this morning. I'm going to read Galatians 2, 15 to the end of the chapter, but we're going to look specifically at verses 17, 18, 19, and mainly at verse 19. Uh, please hear the word of God here. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant, a minister, 
a propagator of sin? Certainly not. God forbid. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. God of all forgiveness, who has declared in his eternal scripture that all who come humbly to Christ in faith will be received into your eternal presence, give us now your Holy Spirit, who we ask would teach us to hear and believe the greatness of your almighty grace, that we might not turn back to the law of sin and guilt and condemnation and death, but might live to you in the freedom of sons. In your gracious name, amen. All right, so Galatians, if you remember, has three sections. The first two and a half chapters or so are Paul's life, his autobiography, given as an example of salvation by grace alone. Because that doctrine of your acceptance with God, your forgiveness by God, your being counted as a son or daughter of God is only by grace and not at all by obedience to God's law. That was under attack in Galatia. They were trying to convince the Gentile Christians that they wouldn't go to heaven with just faith in Christ. They needed faith in Christ plus being circumcised, faith in Christ plus keeping the Old Testament dietary laws, faith in Christ plus. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Look at my life. God didn't bring me into his kingdom based on my obedience to the law. Just the opposite. And I don't preach this gospel of free grace as something man created. It came directly from God. That's the first two and a half chapters. And then after giving his autobiographical example of how a Christian gets saved, Paul then just tells us the doctrine from about 2.15 till the middle of chapter 5. This is just the doctrine of the free grace of God. The doctrine of, I make you sons based on faith in Jesus and nothing else, period. From 2.15 on. And then at the end, in 5.14 to the end of chapter 6, it's applying that free grace to how we should live. So we're freely accepted by God. What impact that should that have on Monday morning? What impact should that have on our relationships? What impact should that have on our sexuality? What impact should that have on how we treat others who are in sin? So the ethics of it. So we're right in the middle, well, towards the beginning, but we're getting into the meat of Paul teaching us, declaring to us what the gospel is, what the grace of God is, how you enter into acceptance before God. Or here in our text, in verse 19, how to live to God, how to be alive to God. We're born spiritually dead in sin. How can you have alive, aliveness in God? How can you be brought to life, be accepted by him? Now, uh, in 2.15, Paul is, you, in a sense, some advantage, contrast between Jews and non-Jews. Jews have 
in, in a sense, some advantage. They were given the covenant promises of God. They were given God's word. They were treated by God better, fatherly, unlike any other nation. And so you would think if anybody could get to God based on their behavior, based on their obedience by God's law, it would be people like Paul, Jews. And this is, in essence, what those false teachers in Galatia were saying. We're Jewish. We're not sinners like you Romans, you Germans, you Polish, you Danish, you whatever else you are. And so, look, we keep God's law. We Jews do. And Jesus came to die to give us forgiveness, but you have to keep God's law too. You have to be circumcised. Look, circumcision, eating this and not that, leads to a pleasing life to God, leads to life in God. And so you got to follow us Jews if you're going to be accepted by God. And Paul says in verse 15, no, verse 16, even we, verse 16, we know, who's the we? Jews. We know, even we who have God's blessings, who have God's word, know that you cannot be justified by your circumcision plus Jesus. So that's the battle. Now you might say, he's going to spend three plus chapters on that little debatable question? Are you kidding me? Yeah, because it's, it's the difference between life and death. It's the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between living in the freedom and joy of the Son of God and living under a constant burden of guilt and shame. And ugh. It's the difference when Jesus says in Matthew 13, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. It's, it's the relief of the birds Jesus was talking about there. It's worth the ink. And so Paul is, he's made the declaration in 316, three times, repeated himself, the law has nothing to do with being accepted by God. Only faith in Christ gets one to God. That's the the declaration over it all. 216 is the thing. Verses 17, 18, and 19 then deal with an objection by these false teachers. And the objection is, Okay, just keep your finger here. Turn to Galatians 5, 19 to 21. A list of sins. Now, you shouldn't read when you get to lists of sins like this as if Paul is just writing a letter and kind of is picking various common sins out of the air and just wanting to create a list. No, he's a father who knows the sins of his children. He's a pastor who knows the temptations and sins of his flock. And he's writing about specific sins prevalent within the Christians in the churches in Galatia. Some pretty gross stuff. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. They're fighting all kinds of enmity, strife, fits of anger, people blowing their tops. They're dividing into little camps all over, thinking they're better. You got drunkenness, you got orgies. <laughs> All right, now go back to 2.17. What's the objection of these false teachers to Paul's teaching of free grace? Free grace leads people to live like hell. Paul, you keep teaching this free grace stuff, and 
it's a license to sin. Look at the behavior of these Galatian Christians. Orgies. <laughs> You're making Jesus a minister of sin, Paul. He's charging Paul with blasphemy. By preaching free grace and saying that your acceptance is only based on faith in Jesus and no law at all, you're teaching people that they can believe in Jesus and do whatever they want. And you're making it like Jesus is winking at sin. Jesus is propagating sin. That's the objection. And it's based on the real lives of the Christians who believe free grace. They're still sinning. Not like us Jewish Christians who don't sin at all. And so what's Paul's answer to that objection? No way! Certainly not! In old English translation, God forbid! Verse 18, for if I rebuilt what I tore down. Now these verses, you might remember in 2 Peter 3, Peter writes that some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand. Remember that? I think he might have been referring to these verses. For if I rebuilt what I tore down, this is, you know, there's, I read, I don't know, three, well, five or six commentaries, and they both all, like, they all had, like, kind of a little different twist on this verse. But I think what Paul is saying, I'm pretty convinced that what Paul is saying here is, like, let's say he's, he, he just condemns the thought that free grace leads to carnal living. Certainly not. Exclamation point. God forbid. No way. You don't know what you're talking about. But then he plays their game. Okay, let's say I preach free grace, no law in regards to your acceptance of God at all. The law is nothing to you. But let's say then I realize I'm wrong and I go back and rebuild the law. What does that prove? It just proves that I was, I'm wrong again. To rebuild what I tore down just proves that I'm doubly wrong. It doesn't prove that free grace is wrong. That's verse 18. And then verse 19 is one of the most radical heretical, blasphemous statements in all the Bible. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. For through the law, I died to the law in order that I might live to God, so that I might live to God. (laughs) This blew my mind. And I've read this many, 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 many times. I've done the Bible reading program, reading through the entire Bible for a year, for the last 15 years. So I've read this at least once a year for the last 15 years, and probably many other times, because when you're preaching, Galatians is always a go-to book. And I didn't have any idea what this meant until Tuesday. Well, I shouldn't say that. That's hyperbole. What does it mean? Luther was so helpful here. For all of you who think that all I need is the Bible, I don't need anybody else's help. You don't know what you're missing. Don't be like that. That's just pride. You need Luther. Go get his commentary on St. Paul's Epistle of the Galatians. Don't get the abridged. It cuts out all of the glory of verse 19. Get the unabridged. It's not in print. You'll have to spend 40 or 50 bucks. You'll have to do some hunting. It is gold. What does verse 19 mean? Well, let, let, let me read it. What Luther said. This then is the proper and true definition of a Christian. That he is the child of grace and the forgiveness of sins. 
He is under no law. He is above the law. He is above sin, death, and hell. Even as Christ is free from the grave and Peter free from the prison, so is a Christian free from the law. What does he mean there? He means this. He means that, this is Luther again, this is a sweet kind of speech and full of consolation where in the scriptures, specifically here in Paul, the law is set against the law. Sin against sin, death against death, captivity against captivity, hell against hell. So he says here that through the law, he is dead to the law. It's as if he said, the law of Moses accuses and condemns me. But against that accusing and condemning law, there is another law, a law of grace and liberty. This law of grace and liberty accuses the accusing law and condemns the condemning law. So death kills death. You remember in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been killed. It's, it's one of these sweet statements in the Bible. Death is dead. How did death die? By what did death die? Huh? Yeah, by death. A far greater death killed death. Luther's, or, uh, the Apostle Paul under the Holy Spirit is using a similar kind of thing here. Why is the law nothing? Why is the accusing, condemning law? If you read the law, when I read that list of sins in Galatians 5, were you convicted of sin there? Right. Accused, condemned, guilty. Does that mean you're no longer accepted by God? What killed that accusing, condemning law? A far greater law. The law here of grace. (laughs) The law of grace killed it. So there's two laws here in verse 19. A greater law that kills, makes us dead to the commands, the laws in the Bible. And that greater law is Christ. That greater law is Christ. That greater law is Jesus' death and resurrection and free acceptance with God, not based on your performance, not based on your goodness, not based on your obedience to anything God's law, not based on the length of your skirt, the length of your hair, whether or not you smoke, whether or not you drink, whether or not you commit sexual morality. The law is dead in regards to your acceptance with God. And that should be more scandalous to your ears than anything I said last week. And so this is an almighty law of grace which makes us dead to the law that terrifies and kills us. The law is dead to us. So Paul says in Galatians 3.11, it is evident that no one will be justified by before God by the law. No one. No one is justified, accepted by, welcomed into God's heaven, welcomed as a child of God by the law, but only by faith. Okay, when Paul, in verse 19, through the law, I died to the law, that second law. There's two laws here. You all see that, right? The first one kills the second one. What's the second law? What does he mean by that word? What's included in that? Where's the first place we meet law in the Bible? What's that? I mean, before that, in the garden. Sure, keep the Sabbath, be fruitful, multiply. Work really hard. Don't eat the fruit. And then 
after sin, laws get multiplied. And then in Israel, they really get multiplied. They legislate everything in a person's life. That's what, that's what that second law is referring to. All of God's commands. Ten commandments. All of God's commands. Love the Lord your God, the heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor yourself. All of that is in that second law. And what Paul is here saying is all of that is dead to you as far as it regards your acceptance with God. It's nothing. Isn't that scandalous? It, it has nothing to do with you. Zero. In regards your God's ultimate acceptance of you. Manasseh, right? Causing his infants to be sacrificed. The law against that has nothing to do with Manasseh's acceptance to God. Except to drive him to Christ. That's why God can simply say, have your kingdom back. I forgive you. Here. Just that free. Isn't that? But, as you know, the, the objection in verse 17 is, but doesn't that lead to living license? Like just freedom to sin. Do whatever you want because you're forgiven. Remember Romans 6? Turn there. Back a couple books. Romans 6, 1. You probably have it memorized. As soon as I start saying it, you'll be able to complete it. What shall we say then? Are we to continue that? Come on. Grace may abound. Right? That's the same logic here. If God's grace forgives sin, then the more I sin, the more God's grace is given. And so, in our little wicked hearts, we think, free grace, free whatever. And what's Paul's answer? No! Same, same thing in Galatians. By no means. God forbid. Why? Because you're dead to sin. Why would you go back to that which enslaved you and kills you? He freed you from it. Free grace doesn't lead to more sin. Free grace leads to freedom from sin. So that's the second half of verse 19. This is the concern of every Christian, right? How can I live for God? That's what we care about more than anything, right? Hopefully. Husband, that's what you care about in your wife's life? How can I live to God for my wife? Same thing, wife. Parents, for your children, your main concern is, how can I live to God for my kids? Christian at work, how can I live to God at work? How can I glorify God, bring light to the darkness here? How, how can I live to God, right? That's what we care about in this culture of death and darkness. How can we live to God? In our politics, what's godly here? What will please God here? How can I be alive to God here? I don't want to be a dead Christian. I don't want to be a lifeless Christian. I want to be a Christian Christian. How do I live to God? And this answer rocks your world. You have to count yourself dead to the law. You have to act like if there is no law in regards to your acceptance with God. It's got nothing to say to you. We're as Christians, too often, living under guilt, condemnation. Every time you read scripture, you're buried further under, falling short. Paul says we're leave his living sacrifices, and we all say this, trikers, and I keep jumping off the altar. What's the way out of that? How do I live? Count yourself dead to the law. Wherefore, Luther says, uh, uh, but the Christian conscience must be dead to the law. Your conscience needs to be as if there's no law, dead to it. That is to say, free from the law. 
and must have nothing at all to do with it. Wherefore, when you see a man terrified, cast down with a sense and feeling of his sin, you say to him, Brother, you do not rightly distinguish. You place the law in your conscience, which only has to do with your flesh. Awake, rise up, remember that you must believe in Christ who conquered the law and conquered sin. These things are easily said, says Luther. He's pastoring us now. It's easy to say that. Christians know it's so easy to say, yes, I'm dead of the law, 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 I'm dead of the law. It's really hard to live. But blessed is he who knows how to lay sure hold on them in distress of conscience. Lay sure hold on verse 19 when your conscience is in distress. That you can say when sin overweights you and the law accuses and terrifies you. This is what you're just supposed to say. Here's Luther giving you what to say when the law is terrifying you. You're weighed down. You're accused. Here's what you say. What is this to me, O law, that you accuse me and say I've committed many sins? Indeed, I have. I have committed many sins, yes, and yet still will commit sins daily without number. So you don't lie. That's what a lot of Christians do. We lie. But no, you don't lie. You, you commit way more than you're aware of, correct? You're sinning right now. I am too. So we agree. But listen, this is what else you say. But that touches me nothing. I am deaf and cannot hear you. Therefore you talk to me in vain because I am dead to you. But if you will need argue with me about my sins, go to my flesh. Teach them to crucify themselves. Uh oh. But don't trouble me any longer. To my conscience, I say, have nothing to do with the law, for I am dead to it. I live to Christ, with whom I am now under a greater law, the law of grace, which rules over sin and the law. Isn't that wonderful? Imagine really living that, believing that. What freedom, what joy. So, for a Christian, who is under what Luther is saying here, your conscience, sin, the law is accusing you, even terrifying you, weighing you down. And if you turn to the law to try to get out from under that, it's like trying to climb a Mount Everest of marbles. The harder you go, the more energy you expend, the deeper you get swallowed in. The answer to your conscience is, be quiet. You have nothing to say to me in this. I'm dead to the law in regards to my acceptance with God. Just be still. Now, if you want to say something, say it to this flesh, to train it to live to God. Terrify my flesh, but in my conscience, in my heart, in my soul, I'm, I'm dead to you. That's what he's saying. Now, is that scandalous? Now, Probably the object, objections rising within you are, yeah, but you don't know me. I do know you, but I sin big time, too often, repeatedly. How can I be a Christian? I'm supposed to be new. You look to the law, 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 you see your sin and you bury yourself under fear and debt and guilt. 
This is who Paul's talking to in verse 19, you. If you're going to live to God, the only way is through being dead to sin, dead to the law, by the greater law of grace. Or you continue to refuse the comfort of this, what Luther calls the almighty law of grace, out of fear, listen, out of fear that if you dare trust this almighty law of grace and kind of jump without any safety net into this glorious warmth Lake Michigan of grace, you'll deceive yourself. You'll be found by God to be a deceiver of yourself. Do you know what I mean? Like you still feel like you need to hold on to the law a little bit just in case at the end, before God, you have realized that, I believed God's grace, but it was in vain. I still sinned. And so you just try to keep a little finger hold on the law. Because you read in the Bible where Jesus says, Lord, Lord. Jesus said, I never knew you. Or you read the threatenings in Hebrews. And so you feel like the way around those is to keep hold of the law. And try harder. And get better. Because you don't want to be found jumping in full-fledged, holding on to nothing, no parachute, no life preserver into God's grace that somehow that can't be trusted. Listen to the twisted thing you got going on in your mind. You are so willing to listen to what the law says and very unwilling to listen to what God's grace says. You got that? You're so stubborn. You listen to the condemnation of the law, but you won't listen to this law of grace out of fear that maybe grace won't be enough at the end. Your sin will have a louder voice. Your failings. Not a good enough mom. I get angry with my kids all the time. And that condemnation overwhelms Christ here saying, my law of grace killed that. It's got nothing to do with you. Period. Maybe you're on the other side. I don't believe all that rubbish about being so sinful. Yes, I know I make mistakes and there may be a hell and Hitler will be there, but, you know, kind of the more liberal, rational, I go to church, I give as I can, I voted Trump. I didn't divorce. Well, you need to listen to the law more that you may be driven to despair to Christ. But mostly, I'm not talking to you this morning. I'm talking to those of you who cannot get over your guilt, who constantly listen to it but are deaf to God's grace. Here's what Luther concludes with. So Paul says here that through the law of grace, he is dead to the law. As if he said, the law of Moses accuses and condemns me, but against that accusing and condemning law, there is another law, the law of grace and liberty. This law accuses the accusing law, condemns the condemning law, so death killed death. And so Paul seems to be a heretic, the greatest of heretics, for he says that he being dead to the law is life to God. You get how radical that is? So what do you do with that? Believe it. Believe it. 
Take good hold of it. That's what Luther says to do. Take sure hold. Take good hold of this greater law of grace. It's not a, a psychological thing. It's a faith thing. It's a believe God's grace. Now, does that mean we don't have to obey God? No. At the end of Galatians, here's what Paul says. We have this incredible freedom, but don't use your freedom to serve your flesh. Use your freedom to love each other, serve one another. That's where believing God's grace leads. Not to more freedom to do what you want. Like that's a <laughs> We're trying to keep the Sabbath at home. And my kids, they're very intelligent. They use that to get out of doing things that I tell them to do. They're really good at it. And sometimes I'm like, well... You're right, but do it anyways. They're free, they know. They're free as children of God to enjoy a day of rest. They're totally free. And yet they kind of twist that freedom to indulge themselves. You know what I mean? Rather than to serve their father in love. Got that, guys? And so we're to use our freedom to care for each other is the point, not to indulge ourselves. But that's not a law that condemns is it. That's the law that frees, like Sean prayed. It's good. It works so well. All right, let's pray. Father, help us here. Help us because we are so weak. Help us because we're so proud. Because we're so given to unbelief. that We just don't want to believe this can be true that you accept us in such a free, simple, no-strings-attached way. There's got to be more. So give us the faith to see Manasseh. Give us the faith to see Paul, a murder of Christians, completely utterly forgiven as an example to us. Give us the faith to endure living in this world of sin and with lives full of sin. And so when we're accused, when we're weighed down, when we're overburdened, hopeless, despairing, that we've done too much, we've done it again, there's just no way to do the hard work of faith, of of quieting that and listening to your law of grace. That, That law has killed the law that we are freely accepted by you, forgiven, counted righteous, accepted forever, beloved, children. And so God, help us there. Please, Father, help us. Help us to not be deceived, thinking that this will be an easy battle, that our flesh, which loved to accuse, that the condemnations of the world, of the devil, which loved to accuse, will just kind of go away quietly, silently. But we all have a fight on our hands, a fight to believe the gospel, Give us strength and willingness to fight that good fight and to help each other bear those burdens. And so fulfill your law of love. And so God, please speak sweetly to us this gospel of almighty grace. So please help us to your glory. Amen.